Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is Noah Walker. Welcome to the podcast, Noah. Hey, thanks for having me. Noah's in my home and he will be talking about OCD, but let me give you a little background on Noah. I met Noah at a family party as he's dating my cousin's daughter, Kate. So if you can follow that, that's how I met him. And somehow we were sitting on the bench table and we started talking about OCD. And Noah opened up about his OCD. And I thought, this is a pretty powerful story. It would help our listeners. So Noah accepted my invitation to be on the podcast. He is um, 20, but as I've listened to him before we visited, he is really bright and thoughtful. and. Um, very smart about this space. So, um, because he's been walking this road for a couple of years and has great insights into OCD as well as some of the subsets. And then he's going to talk about in the end of the podcast, where I wasn't quite sure where God was in this whole process to work through OCD, but he's going to talk about now that he's in a steady state where God was the whole time. Noah grew up in Northern Virginia. He spent some time as a child in Arizona. He spent about 18 months in Utah as a youth. Um, being active LDS in Northern Virginia, you often think someone would come out to Utah because they're going to BYU, but that's not true. <laughs> um, Noah um, has a family connection to the University of Utah that's in his blood, so he's here at the University of Utah. Um, he's working f- um, long-term to become a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Um, using some of the, sometimes the best clinical psychologists I know, it's not just theoretical, but they have real world life experience because of the road they've walked. And Noah's been walking this road. So I think Noah's going to bless a lot of people. Um, our joint prayers, this will help you. If you have OCD or even undiagnosed OCD, that what Noah shares with you will help you. He's going to talk about some sets, some subsets of OCD that we don't talk about as much, like contamination, scrupulosity, which we do, um, but harm OCD and pedophile OCD um, that we don't talk about as much. And if you're working through those, you may just think, this is awful that I have these thoughts. And I think Noah will give you tools to understand where these thoughts are coming from and to separate them from, just he'll give you better tools as we've been visiting with. As you know, OCD targets the things you value the most, and that's one one of the most important principles I've learned talking with um, guests that have bravely stared their stories. So our joint prayers, this will help you, or if you have people with OCD in your life, what Noah shares will help you help them. Um, if you're a local leader, that you can talk about this in a more thoughtful way within your congregation or with your area of influence. And with that, I'll turn it over to Noah to get anything you want to clarify on the description. No, you did a great job. Yeah, for sure. Then we'll just turn it over to you to tell your story. Yeah. So I want to briefly talk about what um, what OCD um, really is. And I know that you've had some episodes that do a really good job of it. But just a quick recap for those who maybe haven't heard those episodes before. OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Uh, it's also known by some as the Doubting Disorder because of the nature uh, of the illness. Um, so what ends up happening with someone with OCD, there's something called the fire alarm cycle. So think of it like this, where you are upstairs and you got someone downstairs cooking bacon and the smoke sets off the fire alarm. And so you hear the fire alarm that gives you high distress and it triggers some anxiety. Uh, and so what you want to do is to alleviate the anxiety, alleviate the threat. So you run downstairs to get the family and run them out of the house. And so now, you know, the next time you hear the alarm, you know what to do. Well. When you have OCD, <clears throat> the amygdala, which is the part of your brain that's responsible for filtering emotional experiences, it's kind of misfiring. So uh, what ends up happening is you are going to see something that ends up triggering a thought like for contamination OCD. What if I touch this and contract a disease or illness, and then I pass it to someone who dies? That is a pretty distressing thought. So you're going to experience a lot of stress and anxiety, and you're going to feel a sudden urge to relieve the anxiety. So you're going to act on a compulsion. Well, I'm just going to stop touching things I'll let people touch, like doorknobs, door handles. Uh, And then as a result, you learn, okay, that's what I have to do the next time. The negative consequence of that is as a result, you are, through a process of learning, you are teaching your brain that things that are not really threatening 
are legitimate threats to you. So that's why the cycle of compulsions gets tighter and tighter. Because as you have these thoughts, you act on these compulsions and you begin to teach yourself that the things that you love the most are threats to you. Um, so my subsets of OCD, I know that we talk, people talk a lot about contamination, scrupulosity, or that just right OCD. Like if I don't flip this light switch enough, then I'm not going to feel comfortable. Uh, we talk about those a lot because those are, I mean, by no means easy to talk about, but you know, when you talk about those people might think you're weird, but if you were to talk about harm OCD or pedophilic OCD, people might think that you are a monster. Um, so harm OCD is when you have thoughts of the nature of what if I intentionally or unintentionally hurt or even take the life of someone. Uh, there was an interesting study that showed that a lot of people, um, the majority of the population, can be at the, a subway station and have a random thought of like, what if I push this, push this person off to the tracks? Like a total grand theft auto moment. Uh, and those are pretty normal. And for someone without OCD, they'd be like, that's a weird thought, but okay. With someone who has OCD, they'll look at that and some of those compulsions could be trying to analyze, why would I have a thought like that? What does that mean? How did I feel when I had the thought? Did I like it? Did I not? If I did like it, what if I did? Does that mean that I'm a monster? Am I actually a monster? Is there something inside of me that could snap and I could hurt or take the life of someone? Uh, and then in pedophilic OCD, it, again, it follows the same trend of other OCD subsets where it just targets the things that you love the most. You'll have a thought of like, oh, I'm sitting with my sibling and they are cuddling me. Oh, I love how that feels. Wait, do I like how that feels because they're my sibling and I love them? Or is it something, is it something worse? And as you start to overanalyze that, it makes you really question, oh my gosh, am I attracted to kids or not? Um, and the thing about OCD is that you have these two phrases that I'll toss out to you, egocentonic and egodystonic. So if egocentonic means that the thoughts that you're having align with your values and your way of thinking and what you believe. So if you're a pedophile and you have these thoughts, that is egocentonic because they like the thoughts, they entertain them. Someone with OCD, it is egodystonic. The thoughts that you have, no matter the subset, are distressing to you because they do not align with your values or your way of thinking. And that's why it is so distressing that you'll act on these compulsions. You will change the way that you live your life to avoid what you now see as threatening. And when you take a look at the total carnage that OCD can leave in your life, you can end up thinking that your siblings, your friends, your family things in your kitchen, your car, books and TV shows that you watch and read, those are all threats to you. And eventually you begin to question who you are. And you can use compulsions to escape the things that trigger you, but there's no amount of compulsion that can get you to escape from yourself. And when you really start to question who you are because of the thoughts and you don't know why they're there, but they torment your everyday, you begin to question, who am I? Am I going insane um so that's why it's so hard for thanks for talking about of course you call it pedophilia is, uh, pedophilic right? ocd yeah I, and um no one's really talked about that i've had i'm aware that's out there and mm -hmm. um you're the first person that's been on the podcast to talk about that but you, yeah. will you say those two ego words again yeah so ego syntonic uh they, they sync with your morals your beliefs like if I have a thought, this would be a little corny. I love Jesus. I love singing. I love rock climbing. Those are egocentric because those are aligned with my beliefs and my values 100%. I go rock climbing three or four times a week. Egodystonic are thoughts that are uncomfortable and concerning to you because they do not in any way align with your beliefs, your morals, your values your way of thinking. Um, and the majority of thoughts that we have in life are unprompted and unwarranted. I mean, if I say pink elephant, you're probably going to be thinking of a pink elephant, right? It's a, it's a classic trick, but it works because that's, that's how you think. Um, and so if you get triggered with OCD, you're not welcoming those thoughts and you're not putting yourself in an environment where it's like, I want to have these thoughts. They are unprompted and 
incredibly stressful and concerning. And so that's why people act on the compulsions and obsessive compulsive disorder, because the things that scare them, you want to avoid. So talk about then how, what you did to avoid, did you avoid kids? Did you avoid family members? Did it change your, I think you kind of inferred that, but just talk about what you did because you had these thoughts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at first it started with small things like there was a painting in my grandparents' house and I had two pretty little girls that were looking up and the hand of Jesus was, was holding one of the girls' heads. And it's a really endearing picture. But for me, it was, I'm just going to not look at that. And then it became any, any time that the TV was on, if there was an advertisement or a news story or a character in a, in a movie that was a, a small child, I would just stop watching altogether because then I would get triggered with these what-if thoughts. Um, and, and so I just, I would avoid them altogether. Pretty soon I would stop looking at photos of my siblings, my cousins, and eventually my contact with my siblings just really limited um, while I was in Utah. Because of my OCD, I ended up having to uh, leave Utah and go back home to live with my family again. I quit my job and I dropped out of school. And when I, it was really hard to be around my siblings, I would check over and over again every time before I took a shower that the door was locked, make sure that there was no way that they could come in. And when I was sitting, like, um, like if you're in a car and your man's spreading, like I wasn't able to do that if kids were around because I was afraid, what if they look at me or what if I'm sitting this way? What if I'm sitting this way because I want them to see something, which just is such a sad thought. Um, and so, I mean, I would change the way I sit, where I sit. I would avoid my siblings. I mean, I, you know, I have a 10-year-old brother and he was nine at the time. And I think for a good couple months, I didn't really talk to him. I couldn't be around him. I mean, it totally drastically limited the way that I, I lived my life because I, I didn't want to have the thoughts like that. Thanks for being so honest. Yeah, of course. Just sort of putting the reality of those thoughts and what you did and the sort of the mental energy, the exhausting mental energy. For sure. And then what you're concluding about yourself because of these thoughts. Oh, yeah. We talk to you now that you're diagnosed and understand this. If you could talk to your undiagnosed self, what would you <sighs> say to that person? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would look at him and, and say, like, it's going to be hard to understand, but your whole way of thinking is totally flipped. You've taught yourself that the people that you love and care about the most are a danger to you and you're a danger to them. And that's not true. Um, and hiding away in your room and wanting to die because you would rather not be alive than hurt someone that you love while it's, you know, a noble reason, like that's not the way. And I think the most impactful thing for me that I heard from a therapist that I would love to have gone back and told myself is there is a way to get better and it's hard, but, and, and I know that it feels like that there is no way out because the thoughts come all the time. They are so persistent and your anxiety is always at a 10. If I use the term suds, that's what we use in clinic subjected unit of discomfort scale. So it's like on a scale one to 10. So your suds are at a 10 and you feel like it's never going to go away. It does get better and you're going to be able to hold your siblings again. That's great. Listeners, I've never really had anybody that separated, you know, true pedophile and, and what he or she, um, who he or she is and how that lines up with them. And obviously a very wrong way but how different that is than you yeah because your moral compass is completely different Um, oh yeah the thoughts the thoughts may be there but the moral compass and what you want to do is completely different yeah and to have those two words describe the difference between you and a true pedophile if i'm using the right vocabulary Mm -hmm. because you're not a pedophile at all yeah on any level um but i think there's probably people listening that have never heard anybody talk about this and they have these thoughts and so thank you from behalf of all of those listeners for your courage to talk about this. Yeah, of course. So just keep talking, Noah. I, you know, at some point you're going to talk about just your path to healing and the therapy that worked and sure. just understanding it, getting a diagnosis. Because you don't get diagnosed until I think um, January of 2021. Yeah. 
So I, it's interesting that a compulsion of OCD can be an urge to tell other people about what you're experiencing and to get reassurance. Uh, the tricky thing that reassurance is a, compul- is a compulsive behavior is because if I go up and say, dad, I am having these thoughts, please tell me that I'm not a monster. You say, no, you're not a monster. Back to that learning behavior of I'm telling myself that if I have these thoughts, then I have to get reassured that I'm not. And I'm only feeling that I need to get reassured because the thoughts are scary and they're threatening to me. So every time I would go and get reassurance, I was just teaching myself that my thoughts were dangerous um, when they weren't. Um, But for a while, yeah, I, I would tell my grandparents and then my parents and step parents every thought that was coming in and out, out of my head. And that was really hard for them because they weren't familiar with what OCD was, but they were hearing incredibly graphic thoughts and images in my head related to the pedophilic OCD and the harm OCD of hurting other people um, in those two ways. So the six months that I had to live at home before I finally ended up getting treatment were just excruciating, trying different medications. I mean, for those of you that have had to find medications um, or SSRIs for an anxiety disorder, you know how hard it is. I, it's a total guessing game. It's a trial and error as to you know, which one that works. Luckily, I got it right on the second try. Prozac didn't work for me, but Zoloft does. Um, so just kind of waiting and repetitively going back into the ring to get hit over and over again until you find what works for you. It's hard. And that's what I did for about six months. Um, but I did end up getting treatment. I, when I moved from Utah, I, I had gone back home to Virginia and a couple months later, I got a, a text from someone that I was in, in class with. And they said, Noah, you haven't been in class in a while. Are you doing okay? And I said, I, I got something called OCD and I'm at a drop out of school and I'm trying to figure out what all of it is. And I feel like this was such a Lord's hand in my life moment because he was the only person that I'd stayed in contact with from Utah. And he said, oh my gosh, Noah, I have OCD, all these different subsets. Which ones do you have? And I was, I, I didn't want to talk about it. Um, but he told me about this treatment center and they have a location in Bountiful, location in South Jordan. It's called the OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center. And he said, I just graduated from this. You should check it out. Uh, and that's what I ended up doing. I considered three options for treatment. Option one, I go to Wisconsin and do a inpatient program. So I'm going to live on site for a couple months in like this forest area in this big building, and uh, I'll, I'll get treated there. But the wait was three or four months, and because I hadn't yet tried a lower level of treatment, insurance wasn't going to cover it. Option two. I buy a one-way ticket out to Utah, and I do an intake at this um, intensive outpatient program. So I would go three hours a day for five days a week um, for however long I needed. Some people were out in eight weeks. Some people, it took over 20. It took me 12, so it took me three months. So I would go in and do the intake with no guarantee that I would be admitted to the program. Uh, And if I wasn't, then I'd just fly back home and figure out something else. But by that point, I had tried a variety of different therapists and different medications and nothing was working. So my third option was, like I said earlier, if I would never be able to live with myself if I were to intentionally or unintentionally act on one of these thoughts. So I was absolutely ready to take my life if one of those treatment plans didn't work out. So I went in for an intake on a Friday. And my intake therapist sat me down and told me about what I was experiencing was actually very common mental illness that hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people deal with. And she was able to tell me that in three months, I would be able to have my life back, which was really hard for me to believe because like OCD had become my life. And after that Friday, I started treatment the following Monday. So I went in Monday through Friday three hours a day, the five days a week. And I, the type of therapy is called uh, ERP or exposure with response prevention. So what you're going to do is, let's say that you are afraid of heights. 
So with this type of therapy, we're going to take you skydiving over and over and over again. So that's the exposure part of response, ERP. We are going to make a list of the things that trigger your OCD. We're going to find the things that make you have the thoughts about the kids. And we're going to find the things that make you have the thoughts about hurting people. We're going to find the things that make you question your religion. And we're going to expose you to them over and over and over again until you learn how to cope with them. So you, that's what the treatment is. You just face your fears over and over. I, I sat down and did the math. I think I did a little over 120 hours of facing my worst fears. Like the things that I was so afraid of that I was willing to change the way I live my life or take my life to avoid them. And I had to be exposed to them. And then the response prevention is okay. Now, now that we know how to cope with it in the moment, how can we prevent a relapse? How can we prevent a negative response? So what we're going to do is when you are in that fire alarm cycle that I talked about earlier, you're going to get triggered. You're going to experience emotional distress, the desire to relieve the distress. Now, instead of acting on a compulsion and feeding into the OCD, we're going to give you a variety of skills that you can use. And we're going to do that instead. We're going to cut out the cycle so you can teach, retrain yourself to know that your thoughts are just thoughts and they aren't threats. So for me, I would watch kids play in pools on YouTube. And I would watch documentaries of school shooters. And I would watch a documentary of a man who took the life of his wife and two girls. And I would look up names on the sex offender registry and read what they did. So I'd face my fears over and over again. And if I had this strong urge and desire to look away, I would do the opposite. It's a trick called opposite action. I would expose myself to it even more. Okay, I'm going to watch an hour of these videos and documentaries. And I'm going to go visit daycares and get tours. And I'm going to use a knife and hold it to the neck of my clinical assistant and just sit with it there with all the thoughts coming in. And I'm not going to push the thoughts away, but I'm not going to keep them in. I'm just going to recognize that they're there and then just watch the thoughts go away. And as my emotions go up, it's like riding a wave. The emotion is going to come high, then it's going to crash, and then slowly just go off out towards shore and pull back in. So I'm not going to push away the, the emotions. There's a really interesting belief that I think a lot of us have that there are negative emotions. And that's really not true. If you've seen Inside Out, you know it's not true. you got to have sadness. And this is Second Nephi doctrine. you got to have sadness. You've got to be able to feel anger and depressed because it's a part of human experience. In the same way that you would never hold yourself back from feeling happy or surprised, you shouldn't hold yourself back from feeling scared or sad or overwhelmed because you're holding back a part of who you are. It's a part of your life. It's a part of your lived experience. Uh, so you stay in the moment. You don't push the emotions away and you just wait for them to drift off on their own. And you just sit with it. I think that was the hardest part for treatment. Just sitting with the emotions and not doing anything to push them away. Just keeping them there and letting them do their thing. And then very slowly over time, I didn't notice a difference with about eight weeks in out of the 12. Your emotional distress will start to subside because you'll get used to it. You normalize it. And your urge to act on compulsions starts to decrease because you start to realize that these are just thoughts and we're going to keep it uncertain. Um, and that was the biggest skill. We called them hook statements. OCD desires perfection and it craves certainty in all aspects of your life. The struggle is I can't see into the future and I can't read minds. And that's where a lot of anxiety comes from. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what these thoughts mean. But like every other experience with anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or generalized anxiety or OCD, it stems from a place of irrationality. For social anxiety, what if I, because I also got treated for social anxiety there. What if I dance around to be goofy and someone's judging me in their head? Well, that's irrational because there's no way I can know what they're really thinking. So. If I come to the conclusion that if I have a thought of what if in the future I 
do something harmful to a child? Well, there's no way I can know what's going to happen in the future. So instead of trying to sit and just sift through my thoughts and memories, trying to find an answer that I'm not going to be able to, because it's with OCD, you're not going to be satisfied. It's never enough. I'm going to sit and go, you know what? I can't say for certain what's going to happen because I can't go into the future, but I know my values and I'll deal with this thought later. I'm going to go back and I'm going to live my life. So instead of sifting through all of those obsessive thoughts of like, what if this happens? What if that happens? I'm going to say, you know what? Can't say for certain, but I'm going to keep living my life. That doesn't mean that I'm questioning my morals. Um, It's quite the opposite. It's acknowledging that there are things that I'm just not going to be able to know what's going to happen in the future. And it's okay to allow uncertainty in. And I'm going to keep living my life. Really good, great segment, Noah. I mean, I think if I'm trying to articulate what you've just taught us is the, the old Noah had the courage to talk to your parents and grandparents about your thoughts. Some wouldn't. Yeah. But you did. And there, and what you wanted was reassurance and they gave you reassurance. And the new world is sort of a completely different 180 from that. 100%. So I hope, I think listeners are picking up on that. You're not looking for insurance. And, and when you say I'm going to act out or I'm going to act on my compulsion, it's not to, you know, molest children. It's to seek reassurance. Yeah. And I'm not seeking reassurance, which would be my normal path to be told I'm okay. I'm living with the reality of these thoughts come in my brain. And I'm normalizing the thoughts and just the reality that's part of who I am. Yeah. And, but look over and over again, I recognize these thoughts don't align with my moral compass or whatever. Yeah. The ego, whatever, which one it was. Yeah. And so you're just being at peace. This is just part of your journey and normalizing that takes down the anxiety, helps you see you're okay. Yeah. Um, It's hard to control thoughts. I've always... I sing a song that I was taught to sing at age 15 to remind me of the thoughts I wasn't supposed to think about. And I just think of those thoughts, Noah. So singing this, we can't not think something is what another podcast guest taught me. Yeah, And so that song just reminds me of the thoughts I'm not supposed to think about way back when I was 15. So everybody's got their own formula, but I think I'm recognizing we need to be okay with the thoughts that come into our mind. We're not seeking out bad thoughts, but it's just the reality of mortality. And if you've got OCD, then you sort of go one path with those thoughts and you're, yeah. and you're living with the ambiguity. And I love where you even went in the future. Yeah. You can't know the future. So you're just not going to deal with the future. Yeah. It's not, you're not putting your head in the sand. It's just part of the ERP therapy that just helps you be emotionally healthy Yeah, with the reality of having OCD. Yeah. Is my, that okay? No, for sure. I have, I'm wearing a wristband right now from my treatment center that I got when I graduated. And it says one thing on it, it says live uncertain. I, that's the crux of the therapy. And if you're sitting there and you are the parent or grandparent or friend of someone with OCD, and you've noticed that you've been reassuring them a lot and you want to know how to really help them instead of worsening and t- tightening their spiral. Uh, I was taught that validation is actually a far more powerful tool. Instead of saying, you're not a monster, you're not these thoughts, everything's going to be okay. You don't know if things are going to be okay. So what is far more helpful is saying, hey, you're going through something that's really hard, but you're doing the best and I'm really proud of you. Or I know that this is hard for you, but keep going. You're doing a great job. Or I know this is hard for you, but let's stay in the exposure a little longer. I know this is triggering for you, but let's keep watching this documentary and staying in a little longer. That type of validation is, I mean, far more helpful than reassurance will ever be. Um, So I wanted to toss that in real quick, but I think that what we were talking about, about uncertainty, that's one of the reasons I wanted to come onto the podcast today. Uh, because it is a perfect parallel with faith. Faith is having a ton of uncertainty and choosing 
to be a follower, follower of Christ anyway. There are a very select few individuals on earth who are going to know for certain that God is real and that Christ is our savior. And I think those, that's a prophet and his apostles and those who have seen the hands of God. For the rest of us normal folk, it's a little different. We have to rely on faith. We have to be able to say, okay, I have a desire to believe and I want to follow Christ. And while I'm very uncertain about whether he's real, what if it's confirmation bias? What if I'm, what if it's not the spirit? And what if it's just an emotion that I'm feeling or the chemicals in my brain giving me this feeling? Well, okay, maybe it is, or maybe it is the spirit. And right now I can't know for certain, but I want to live my life in a way that isn't limited by my fears. My dad has told me a lot to not take counsel from my fears. And I think when you start to follow your doubts in faith, that's kind of what you're doing. You're taking counsel from your fears. So you know what? I don't know for certain if God is real, but I'm going to keep the commandments and go to church and pay my tithing and be worthy to use the priesthood because that's how I want to live my life. I, I like, I, it, you have to choose to not believe in something. Like you have to believe in not believing. I have to believe that he's not real or I have to believe that he is. So between the two of those, I'd much rather believe that he is. You know? It's a great segment. I, if you read Alma 32, it talks about planting the seed uh, of faith and trying this great experiment. And that was such a fantastic parallel to what I was experiencing. It's okay. I don't know anything about OCD or I don't know anything about God, but I have a desire to believe or a desire to get better. So what I'm going to do is embrace that uncertainty and act on faith. I'm going to read my scriptures and pay my tithing. I'm going to do my exposures over and over again. I have no idea if I'm going to get better. I don't know if it's helping. It definitely feels like I'm not because I keep facing my fears over and over again. But I hope that I will get better. Or I hope that when I lay my hands on someone's head to give them a blessing, I am using the power of God. And then it talks about later in Alma. It's like, is your, after this experiment where you taste the fruit and you feel the light of Christ, is your knowledge perfect? No your life has been amplified and blessed beyond comparison. And that's what happens at the end of treatment. You can't cure OCD. I'm never going to be able to not live without it. But I can embrace that uncertainty and be like, you know what? Maybe these thoughts are right. Or maybe I have a mental illness that plagues my every day. But I'm going to live my life that's happy. Or I have social anxiety. You know what? Maybe people are thinking that I am worthless or judging me, but maybe they're not. And I can't know for certain and that's okay. So I'm going to focus on the things that I, I do know for certain. Um, and I'm, I'm looking back through uh, Alma, uh, Alma chapter 32, verse 36, um, where after we decide that our, even after we've tasted the light, our knowledge is not perfect. But then it says, nay, neither must ye lay aside your faith. Just because you don't have a perfect knowledge does not mean that your knowledge is flawed and that you're wrong and that following Christ is foolish, right? I, that doesn't mean that you should give up. And just because I don't know whether or not these thoughts in my head are actually, I do know that they're not how I feel. But in the moment, that trick of a hook statement, it's like, okay, I don't. I can't say for certain whether or not this is going to happen. Just because I can't say for certain doesn't mean that I should just wallow in my pity and give up throwing the towel. Well, if there's no way that I can know what's going to happen in the future and maybe I'm going to hurt someone, well, I might as well just give up now. Like it says in the scriptures, that's not what you're supposed to do. And that's such a perfect parallel. Um, the other thing that it, it talks about that it says uh, in verse 41, but if you will nourish the word, Yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow by your faith with great diligence, with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof. It shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. 
and then in 43, then my brethren, you shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. So not only is that great for your testimony, but if you're suffering with a mental illness, you're not going to be able to cure it. You're not going to be able to have that perfect knowledge. You're not going to be able to feel perfect. And that is okay. That is God's design. It's clearly intentional because if he's all powerful and all good and he chose to give us hardships, then it was probably the right call. But if you keep being diligent and patient and long-suffering, continually exposing yourself to the things that make you the most afraid, you will not only be able to taste the fruit of Christ, but it says it will take root in you and a, a tree will spring up into everlasting light. You will be able to give that fruit to other people. You can take the experiences that you have and be able to bless the lives of other people. With a testimony, that's clear. If you've gone on a mission, you can go out and not say for certain that God is real because you haven't seen his face. But you not only have that desire to believe, but you have faith. That's embracing the uncertainty, but walking with Christ anyway. And you are going to change lives. People are going to be baptized and raise their kids in the church and be able to feel the light of Christ every day. And that's because of you. That's because you embrace the long-suffering and you were diligent. It's the same thing with treating a mental illness. You stick in it. You stay diligent and you be patient with yourself and with the process of treatment. And you will be so much better and be able to touch the lives of the people around you in ways that are so profound you might not be able to see for years to come, that you can totally change lives by living with faith, not only with your testimony, but having faith in yourself and your OCD. Like faith is required in all aspects of life. You got to have faith that a marriage or relationship is going to work out. You got to have faith that your car is going to get you to work. You've got to have faith that the studying that you're doing for your exam is going to pay off. None of those things are are certain. I got a flat tire the other day. I've had a relationship that didn't work out. I've definitely bombed the test. But I have faith that what I'm doing is going to work. And so I'm going to keep trying anyway, because if they do, I'm going to be so joyful and feel the light of Christ in my life. Like the, the, <coughs> I don't know if you can see the picture that I'm trying to paint, but the exposure response prevention therapy is quite literally copying and pasting Alma's prophetic message. Like they are so parallel to each other. I mean, it's incredible if you really look at it, how they are just the same. Like in the scriptures unto ourselves, that's a great insight, Noah. That was a terrific segment. Um, You mentioned you've had some feelings of suicide, even maybe some plans. Talk to those that um, feel suicidal or what would what would you say to your earlier self feeling that way now oh gosh yeah that's that's really hard um, I was really suicidal I didn't have a very set plan but it was like if this treatment doesn't work out that's what I'm going to do and the times that I was ready to I didn't because I knew that my family was in the other room and I didn't want them to have to see or deal with that. Um, that is really hard. I, I was suicidal because I couldn't escape my thoughts. They would show up in my dreams. Like even when I would go to sleep, I would have a dream where I was sitting naked in a room with a towel over me and all of my siblings and cousins were there. Like I would, I would have dreams that would trigger my OCD the point where I would wake up in a cold sweat and I'd go throw up because my anxiety was so high. And I remember for like a straight week in February of 2021, I would wake up to anxiety. I go throw up outside and then I lay in bed for about 10 hours because I was so afraid of being around people. Uh, so when you look and realize I can't even avoid my mental illness and pain when I'm asleep. Like there is no escape. And you kind of only see one option left. It's a dark door, but it's there. Uh, can't experience that if you're gone. 
problem with that though is that you are gone. And that tree that I was talking about earlier, the lives that you could touch, you know, none of that will will happen. And the lives that you have already touched, your friends and family, will be you know, so much darker. So for me, I would have gone back and told myself, like, be patient. It is so worth it to endure and your long suffering, like it talks about now, is is going to it's going to pay off. Like it's hard. It is really hard to not die if you're ready to go. That's really hard, and I know how that feels. But yeah, what I would have told myself is, if you stay in it a little longer, if you stay in the exposure, you will get better. The thing about treatment is that it's not a linear progression. I didn't graduate treatment and get better. I, I relapsed. I almost had to go back and do treatment again. I had to sit down with my therapist and seriously consider doing the treatment again. You, there are times that you're going to get better and feel elated and you are on a high. And there are times where you feel like all of your hard work is just crumbled at your feet and you have lost everything that you've worked for. The down that you feel it's not going to be the only one, but that's not how you're going to feel forever. And it does get better. It just requires patience. That's what I would have said. Great segment. Bunch of great segments. Um, I know we want to talk about, and you've kind of gotten into it with Alma, just, you know, where's God in this whole process? Is yeah. that a separate segment than Alma? Yeah, I mean, I well, yes and no. I got through treatment and I was like, I did it. I feel not great, but a lot better. Like I can I can live my life. I can go back to school. I can hold a job. I can be at a park and not worry about kids being there to trigger my thoughts. And I'm not gonna have to worry about what type of books I read um or shows that I watch. And I'm not gonna have to worry about cutting a sandwich because I have a knife. Like I've got my life back. And I looked and I was like, where was God? What got me through treatment was my hard work and my diligence and my friends that I made in treatment and the program, the ERP treatment. That was what saved me. So where was God? He didn't carry me. That was the science. That was the treatment plan the tried and true plan that I can see it's real. I can feel it and I'm seeing it work for everyone. It's something I can like study and hold on to. Like that is what did it. And so I kind of felt a bit abandoned by God. I was like, he was, I get the, the third watch, <laughs> but that was a really long one. And I guess I'm still in it because he hasn't walked on the, excuse me, he hasn't walked on the water to save me yet. And the storm died down. The boat's not rocking anymore, and he's still not walking on the water. He's still sitting on the mountain. I went through that whole thing by myself. And it, it took a bit, uh, I mean, almost a year, because uh, I graduated in August. So a year from this month uh, to really see the Lord's hand in my life, see the footprints in the sand, if you're familiar with that poem. I mean, that's really what I went through. I had to look back and, and find the footsteps of where he carried me realizing that that treatment plan was so in line with God's principles made me realize that he was there the entire way. And I think he was, can't say for certain, but I really want to believe that he was because of what it taught me about faith. Like that was going through my OCD experience and getting treatment was so profound for my testimony. Like it, it didn't just teach me how to love myself again and how to feel whole and learn to live with OCD. Like it didn't just teach me that. It, it taught me about how God works in our lives in a way that I, I never realized even after treatment I, to know about the principles of faith and how I can apply it in every aspect of my life 
including Parsland's mental illness, loss, depression. That was such a gift from God. I think that oftentimes in the church, we tend to live in a, in a, in a bit of a box. How do you know if it's the spirit? You're going to feel the warm feeling in your chest and it's going to be a still small voice. I feel like for most people, our spiritual experiences are very much so outside of that box. I think that God communicates with us in, a, in our own unique way because he knows us. Uh, and again, those with scrupulosity could say, well, what if it's, what if I just want to believe that? So I do. I mean, maybe. Maybe not, can't say for certain, but I'm going to continue believing that he's real anyway, because that's what makes me happy. And so for me, I believe that he communicates with me in a way that could only be from him. And for me, it was dragging me through the fire. And it reminds me of the story, uh, oh gosh, in the New Testament where the father comes up to Jesus with his son. Um, who was, he was like gnashing at his teeth and foaming at his mouth. Um, and then the Lord, I believe, cast out the, the spirit. Um, sometimes, like for me, like that's what it felt like, just being that son where you've gone years and the miracle hasn't come and you've had a desire to believe and you're trying to do the work and you're not getting better. Uh, and then, finally after being patient then you get healed and for me that that's how it worked that's how he communicated to me um and taught me this lesson so so that's why i think yeah that's where i think he was i don't think he was there holding my hand trying to give me reassurance i think it was a teaching moment that i i had to learn by kind of walking it alone for a bit i like that um, other, I've got some questions for you. Do you have other things you want to make sure to share though? No, I mean, I, I'd love to hear your questions. Yeah. Um, want our guests to remember you're 20. Um, <laughs> um, you speak way beyond your years. Um, Thank you. on all the things you've talked about. It gives me, are you a Gen Z? Am I thinking the right? Oh gosh. I was, I was, Kate is shaking her head. Yes. I was Kate. born in March of 2002. I think, I think so. But That's unfortunate. I just recognized where I was at 20. I didn't have any of the vocabulary to talk like Noah does. I I just hadn't had the life experiences, sort of the, ex, you know, so it just gives me hope for the future of our world and our church when I meet someone like Noah, who has walked some pretty difficult roads. But then, you know, I call these guys, and you've heard me read this quote a lot, the wounded healer, and I'm going to read it right now for any of you that don't regularly listen. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. And so you're the wounded healer. Um, And um, we're all wounded in some ways, but you're a little more trans, your generation is just more transparent and vulnerable and real and destigmatizes. You talk about mental illness. And as you talk about that with you, I don't sense any shame or stigma around that. Just like if you were walking here with a broken foot um, that may be never quite healed. And I think that's a good thing, Noah. Um, and it's a credit to you. It's a credit to the people around you. I think it's a credit to increase just light coming into the world. But then it, you're not at this point at 80, you're at this point at 20 and your ability then through your profession and just your experience to help others that are in that desert, because you, you know, this desert just as a gift you will give to people. That's more of a statement. My question a little bit is, and you can comment on that is, uh-huh. this is a leading question. Why do you think this experience makes you a better husband and father? That's a great question. That's a question that's leading though. Uh, yeah, so no, the answer sure. is I'm thinking you'll say it will. Yeah, I, I you know what? I hope so. Um I am 20, and even though I live in Utah, I'm not that doesn't mean I'm married, uh, and I'm not a father. Uh but I, I really it is a leading question, but I, I would like to think that it would it would help me be better. Because the thing about having a mental illness, 
or any or any struggle uh, is that you're going to be able to empathize, not just sympathize, but you're going to know what it feels like. You're going to be able to sit with someone and know exactly what they're going through. Um, OCD is genetic, so there's a chance my my future kids uh, could deal with it. But the lesson about patience and long suffering, I think, is going to be really, really valuable as a father. Um, not just to keep reminding myself of those lessons, because I can imagine raising a kid is hard. Raising me, I'm sure, was hard. Um, but I think my approach to being a father is going to be far different from if I hadn't had OCD. Not reassuring my kids, but giving them validation, reminding them that they are doing a great job. And I know that they're trying their best, and their best is absolutely good enough. Um, yeah, I think that. Kind of back to what you said earlier, like it, it did take a, a long time to get to this to this point. I mean, the shame and the stigma that comes with these more taboo subsets, by reason that no one talks about them, is incredibly difficult to open up about. Like sometimes when I'm first explaining them, it feels like I've got to walk on glass very carefully. How do I say this without people seeing me on the total opposite end of the spectrum um, of someone who were to enjoy these thoughts and I don't? Um, and it made me kind of realize, like, wow, I've definitely, most likely, judged people in the way that I probably didn't want to be. And so that was also a really good lesson in compassion, having to learn to overcome the shame and stigma that comes with my mental disorder. And whenever people say, I'm so OCD, I, th- I don't think the average person realizes how offensive that is. Um, Why? That's a great question. So. I don't mean to totally sidetrack from what we're talking about, but if someone says, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD because your room is clean, that is not true. Remember the egocentonic, egodystonic. Your room is clean because you like it to be and it aligns with your moral values. OCD is an anxiety disorder. It is in the DSM-5, which is like a therapist holy grail. It is their Bible of mental disorders of what it is, what are the symptoms, how to treat it. It is an anxiety disorder. It is discomfort. It is fear. It is stress. It's a living hell. And so for someone to kind of make a playful joke about that, like you wouldn't do that if you were to forget something, you would never do that with Alzheimer's. But you wouldn't make a joke like that about schizophrenia. But for whatever reason, and I think it's because people don't talk about the more taboo subsets of OCD, people find it totally acceptable to make a comment like that. And it's actually really, really hurtful because it's like, you have no idea what I went through, how close I was to taking my life, how much I limited myself, how afraid I was to look at the things that I loved the most, like my family, and just watch them be taken away by my mental illness. Um, so having to deal with that and kind of hear people say that, that, yeah, that was really hard kind of transitioning back to your question about being a father and a husband, like having compassion and knowing that I'm going to look at someone and only understand that there is so much complexity to each person that I, I have no idea what they're going through. Um, I, I, like, I would like to think that with my OCD, I'm at a point where unless you are very close to me, you can't tell when I'm getting triggered. Like to clarify, exposure with response prevention treatment, it does not stop the thoughts. The thoughts still come and they come pretty frequently. Not as frequently as they used to, but they still come. It's something that I live with every day. But I know how to cope with it and deal with it to a point where I'm using my skills kind of subconsciously because I've used them so much. Um, so for people to look at me and they'd have no idea what I went through because I, it's not obvious anymore. So looking at someone, you're going to have no idea if they went through an intensive outpatient program or if they are going through a trial of faith. Um, I was taught in Sunday school. I, wow. I was taught in Sunday school when I was a kid about the principle of the silent surrender. I think he kind of took it from a Navy SEAL, but I'm not sure. So I'm not going to quote that. But like the, the point where someone totally gives up on like all hope is 
silent. It's not an audible declaration of, okay, I'm throwing in the towel on life. I'm done. It's a silent thing that you're probably not going to see in other people. Um, and so you never know if someone's really going through something like that. Because a lot of the times it's not outwardly shown. So I think, yeah, the, the long answer to your question is it would help me as a father because it's taught me to be compassionate. It's taught me to validate my, my children and my spouse. And it wants me to, I, I, it makes me want to be a better person. That is a good answer. I credit to your family culture growing up that it seems to be you could open up to your family about the thoughts that may be partly your personality, partly your family culture. But yeah. Well, you know, I'm a divorced kid. My mom's an alcoholic. I, she wasn't around for a while. So it's like I, being able to find a support group that isn't necessarily just my family uh, was also really important. I think that's good. Yeah. And I think your own family culture will be such that your kids will just know that they can open up to you about what's going on in their life and you'll have better tools than I certainly had, you know, raising kids. I'm 60, so our kids are all in their 20s and 30s. So I think that's one of the the gifts and, it, you know, your role in the church and however you serve. I think your future spouse will know you get her um, and she will feel safe opening up to you about the reality of her life since you're pretty transparent about your life and vulnerability breeds vulnerability and some of the greatest love stories i know are with people that are just have this connection but also just this honest vulnerability and can help each other if i were 20 was i i mean when i if i were roughly your age and i would have had i had a checklist listeners of things i look for in my wife and um having a mental illness would have been a deal breaker. Um, But I recognize as I've aged up the, what I'm the checklist is the means to the end. The end was somebody who had the qualities I was looking for empathy, compassion, commitment to the church, perspective tools to raise kids, tools to connect with me. And I recognize that the mental illness and my wife doesn't have a mental illness, but in your situation, that, checklist deal breaker would mm-hmm. would have prevented me from you know seeing somebody the way god sees them yeah. and the and the character behind that that actually would help them be a, helps them be a better person and have more skills to bless others so that's me talking to just out those of you that have a mental illness or have a, somebody in your family with a mental illness it can be obviously difficult Mm-hmm. And there's probably times you'd love to push a button and not never have had this experience. Yeah. But you're going to bless a lot of people on this podcast. Well, you know what? That makes me think I kind of want to go back and amend one of the answers that I said earlier. We are into amending. When you said, like, what would you say to yourself when you were suicidal and when you were starting treatment? I think I would also add that not only is it going to get better, you are going to become so much stronger and learn such a powerful lesson that will change the way that you live your life and see people like I, the, the tools that you gain from such hardships are some of the greatest tools. Like you, you'll appreciate them so much. Like you're going like in the same way that you appreciate light far more when it's turned on in a dark room than when you're with it. Like you are going to appreciate the lessons that you learn in your trials so much more. Like it's just going to make you so much stronger. I would add that in there as well. I love that. And this is a little bit tangent, but it'll just take a couple minutes. I was sitting in elders quorum and I've never been able to get this yeah. experience out of my brain. So I'm going to share it with you podcast listeners. <laughs> um, it's just a really good discussion. I think it was a visitor that asked a question. How do I know when I received an answer to my prayer? It's a very thoughtful question, and I didn't participate, but one brother said, well, it's the first answer you get is the answer to your prayer. And I thought about that, and I thought about this brother who I don't know, and I thought, you know, if he's working through an OCD, he may be needing certainty in the answer to his prayer. And he may, if you're OCD, you may need to learn what you're teaching us know on the podcast is learn to live with uncertainty and an yeah. OCD person may just continually recycle looking for certainty. And it may be the first answer, but mm-hmm. sometimes line upon line, um, 
your first answer leads to uh, additional answers as you're praying for something. So yeah, I think if I were now answering that question, I didn't answer, I would say, I don't know enough information to answer your question. Yeah. And I shouldn't give you a, uh, an answer because I really don't know your situation. And personal revelation is so personal. I should maybe teach principles mm-hmm. and maybe open the door. If you've got some OCD in there that you've got to cycle through that as well as the same time. So yeah, there now you have, now I've answered the question I wanted to answer in Elder Scorm that I didn't from several months ago that I've been thinking yeah. about. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's bananas to me how sometimes we're taught that there is a one-size-fits-all solution to doctrinal principles because that is just not true. We're far too different. I, I, I think for me, like oftentimes when I ask it, when I pray, and this is something that I still really struggle with. How do I know if it's a prayer or if it's not? I would probably tell myself you can't say for certain, but if the answer that you get is something to do out of fear, then that's probably not what I'm going to do. But if the answer that I feel is just out of love for myself and those that I care about, then that's what, like, when I really struggle with, is that an answer from God or is that my thoughts? Because oftentimes the first answer that I get, that first thought, is myself or OCD. Um, shooting a thought in there. Um, so it often takes a while for me to really get an answer to a prayer, and that's okay. But for me, it's this fear versus love dichotomy. Of, how do I know if it's OCD? How do I know if it's God? Well, if it's a decision to lock myself away from my siblings because of fear, well, then that's not of God. But if it's a decision to do an exposure, and do hard things so I can be with my siblings again because I love them. If love is the driving factor in my decision-making, then that's the decision I'm going to go with. I, and I, trusting your trust in your gut. I, I think it would be kind of weird if God answered all of our prayers by telling us what to do all the time. I, that's I, You've got to be able to make decisions for yourself. We were given agency, not so we could throw it away and ask God to tell us what to do. I love that. So maybe some of that, um, my personal thoughts and Noah's right on par with that are helpful for you. But I, I think receiving answers to prayer is very personal and we each have our own personal formula we need to develop. And you can hear stories about how other people get answered to prayers, and that may help you, but I think you've got to write your own story about how you get answers to your prayers and do that the way it comes to you. And I think it's a fine question to ask an elder's quorum how you get answers to prayers to help you. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to figure out how that worked best for you. And it may be different than other people. And if it comes a little harder for you, don't look inward and say it's because God loves you less or because if you did something early in your life and he's still punishing you all the things you could think just think it's part of um, your journey but i love where noah talked about faith-based decisions versus fear and you've got some Mm. sort of principles in there to understand is this an answer to my prayer um, or is this not and so i love that um listeners will link in the show notes to the the book i wrote listen learn and love improving latter-day saint culture we have a chapter seven in there, overcoming scrupulosity, which is religious OCD. We intentionally didn't talk about in this podcast because we've talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, Noah could probably do a whole other podcast on that one. <laughs> yeah. But if you're not familiar with scrupulosity, um, please read this chapter, become familiar with that. It's something I wish I had known. And if you're always needing reassurance, you're morally clean. If you're a missionary preparing for a mission, and you go to the bishop and you confess that's that's what you were doing for validation with your parents. Uh-huh. And that just re- that just increases the cycle. I think you even use the words tightening the cycle. Yeah. And so you've got to learn to not go to the bishop. Um, and the bishop's got to learn that sometimes I've got someone who actually shouldn't be coming to me because they have scrupulosity and I'm just adding to the cycle. Yeah. And so we won't spend um, any more time on that, except if you're not familiar with scrupulosity, please become familiar with that. It can help you help others. Any closing thoughts, Noah, for our listeners? Yeah, a couple. Well, another plug for you, by the way, if you don't have the book, I don't know why you wouldn't go buy it, but you could also listen to other episodes on your podcast because there are some great ones about scrupulosity. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, some of my, a couple of closing thoughts would be, um, if you, like, I, I would love to go into, into depth about all of the different subsets and every experience and when I think they started for me. Um, but if you have questions about OCD, go to iocdf.org, the International OCD Foundation website. That has all the answers to all your questions. If you think you're struggling with OCD, that would be a great resource. But I caution to not self-diagnose. Go talk to a therapist. Go talk to a psychiatrist. Open up. Be vulnerable. Seek counsel. And don't take counsel from your fears. Um, a lot of what I said, it, parts of it might be familiar to some people. And that's because everyone feels anxiety and distress all the time. And everyone has some wacky thoughts. The difference that makes it OCD, a disorder, is because of how intense it is and its frequency to a point where it is just unbearable and it's so severe. But yeah, I guess that would be my closing thought on the OCD end of it. If you feel like you're struggling, go get help and that there are so many people who have felt what you feel. My only other closing thought would be on the more spiritual side, which is that I can't say that I know the church is true. And I can't say that I know without a shadow of a doubt that God is real and he loves me. But I believe it. And I have faith. I am embracing my uncertainty. And that is okay. That is the one reassurance that I'll provide. I know it's not always healthy, but I'll give just the one. It is okay to be uncertain and be scared and feel lost in the church. There is a lot of red tape to cut through. There are a lot of things about politics and how the church is run that can feel kind of icky. Uh, but the, the gospel doctrine, I, I, be, I believe in Christ. And I believe that he's my savior and has taught me so much about who I am and how to live my life. And I'm okay that I can't know for certain, but I, I, gosh, I'm going to run with it. I'm going to live my life how I want and I'm I'm gonna keep the commandments and try and be a disciple. I think those yeah, that's it. Well done, Noah Walker. On behalf of all of the listeners have listened and will listen. Um this has helped a lot of people. You're a great man. Well thank you. Um just gonna repeat back one of the lines you just said in that last segment and then sign off. Don't take counsel from your fears. Uh, Richard Osler, Noah Walker signing up from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>